Well, amen. Happy Mother's Day, moms. Children, before you go downstairs, give your mom a hug. Give her a hug, and then you're dismissed to go downstairs to give, uh, to have your time of study. While they're leaving, hey, I want to recognize Cameron. Cameron, wave your hand, stand up. Sing a song, Cameron. Sing song. No, no. Cameron, I'm just kidding. Cameron just joined our church and is part of Fullness. Welcome, Cameron, to the Fullness Spotting. All right. Um, <laughs> I don't do that to everybody who joins, Cameron, just special people. Hey, uh, let me give you some sayings uh, for Mother's Day, just to start off the morning, get us kicked off. This is from Phyllis Stiller. She said, I want my children to have all the things I couldn't afford then I want to move in with them. <laughs> uh, this is from uh, some lady, I don't know. If your kids are giving you a headache, follow the directions on the aspirin bottle, especially the part that says, keep away from children. <laughs> uh, parenthood is the passing of a baton followed by a lifelong disagreement as to who dropped it. Mark Twain said, my mother had a great deal of trouble with me, but I think she enjoyed it. Uh, that's hard to know. Uh, you don't really understand human nature unless you know why a child on a merry-go-round will wave at his parents every time around and why his parents will always wave back. I love that one. Uh, Reese Witherspoon said, if you're not yelling at your kids, you're not spending enough time with them. <laughs> That's probably true. Um, my mother's menu consisted of two choices, take it or leave it. That was my house for sure. Working mothers are guinea pigs to a scientific experiment to show that sleep is not necessary to human life. And finally, uh, there's an old Chinese proverb that says, there's only one pretty child in the world, and every mother has it. Our mothers see the best in us. I thought for just for fun, I found an old video of my two oldest kids. This is a, this is a parenting video. These are, this is a video of my two oldest sons uh, when they were younger playing with each other. Who runs into this? <laughs> Mom, do you feel like that's your kids when they're playing each other? They're just standing there yelling with nothing, uh, nothing being said. There should be joy in raising children, right? I mean, there should be joy in raising children. Um, but to be honest, there is a move in our society, I think, to take the joy out of raising children. As a matter of fact, there's a move in our society that sees children more of as a burden than a blessing. Um, that uh, really, having children will prevent women particularly from achieving the destiny for which they're supposed to be achieving, that children block their path. When I was young, the truth of the matter is that um, some 30%, actually a little bit lower, 30% of women were working. Now it's flipped, and 70 to 80% of um, moms are working outside the home. And there is a 
There is finances involved in this engagement, but at the same time, what I want to do this morning is, I'm not dishonoring to that, I just want to say, how do we put the joy and the vision back into the truth about parenting and especially moms? Now, the sermon I'm going to give you this morning, I don't think anybody else is preaching this passage. Uh, this morning on Mother's Day, and you'll see why in just a moment, and we're going to flip it, hopefully, where it'll be a blessing to us. But my goal this morning is not just to encourage moms, but to encourage parents and to really encourage all of us to say that God has given us tools that when used for his glory can accomplish much more. It really dovetails from the sermon last week about limitless. If you weren't here last week, I preached on the limitless possibilities of God from one of the key passages for us as a, as a church. But this morning, focusing on moms, but at the same time, there's broader implications for all of us. Uh, it seems like on so many fronts, mothers particularly, are battling against forces that seem to be so much bigger that we have no hope of winning. That we're battling at times against culture, we're battling against media. We're battling against uh, the education process in some cases. We're battling against the prosperity of this present generation where wealth and riches uh, bring privilege. Technology is off the chart, robbing us of opportunities with our, our children. Um, the whole humanistic, it's all about me mentality that pervades our these wep These things that are coming against us, they seem so much bigger than anything we have to battle with. How do we battle such forces? There's an old saying that's been used, uh, never bring a knife to a gunfight. Uh, and so it feels like so many times what we have is knives being brought to gunfights. You remember this scene from Raiders of the Lost Ark where he's, the, he's got a whip and this guy got a, has, a, has a big sword and Indiana Jones whips out his gun and just shoots the guy. It's one of those unexpected moments in movies. But so many times we feel like we are battling and we don't have the weapons to fight. There's a strange and vivid story in the Old Testament, uh, in the book of Judges, that goes against this old adage about bringing a knife to a gunfight. And uh, I started to title this uh, sermon, How to Bring a Tent Peg to a Sword Fight. Uh, and so this is a story from the book of Judges, and it's found in Judges chapters 4 and 5, and I'm going to summarize it for you. Um, remember, Scott opened the, the morning with the whole judges theme that a generation came that didn't know the Lord, so God would send really an outside force against the nation of Israel to, to discipline them and bring them back, and they would come under such oppression that they would call out to God. He would then send a judge who would rescue them. For the period of the judge's life, they would generally live worshiping toward God, but then the next generation would come in and the cycle would repeat all over again, where they would leave the Lord and God would bring forces in. Well, in Judges 4 and 5, we see this cycle being done, and there's a, there's a powerful Canaanite king who has a general named Sisera, and Sisera is a, a powerful force in that region. Uh, it says that he has 900 iron chariots that, uh, and if you think about it, 900 iron chariots is like a nuclear weapon for that period. 
And so the Israelites are just un, have been for 20 years oppressed by this Canaanite king and his general Sisera. And a, a judge is raised up, actually a female judge, Deborah, who's, a, who's also listed as a prophet. By the way, not prophetess, but prophet of the Lord. And she judges over the nation of Israel. And God comes and gives her a word and says, if you'll go into battle, we'll defeat the Canaanite king. So she has a general, a leader named Barak, and Barak is, uh, she says, go out and meet the forces. God has told me that he'll give them into your hands if you'll go do battle. So Barak says, I'll go, but I'm not going without you. Uh, you're, the, you're the judge. And uh, Deborah says, okay, I'll I'll go with you. God's going to give you the victory. But because you demanded I go with you rather than depending on God, you're not going to get any of the glory for this. Barak says, I don't care. I think he says, I don't care. I just want to live. Let's go. And so they go out to battle. Sure enough, they, um, they have an incredible, incredible victory. Uh, God does things miraculously that leads to the defeat of the Canaanite army. Uh, Sisera has to get off of his iron chariot and runs away. And he runs away and he ends up at, at the tent of a guy named Heber, H-E-B-E-R, the Kenite. Kenites were the descendants of the brother-in-law of Moses. Uh, so they're, you know, like distant cousins. And Heber has a wife named Jael. And Sisera, are you staying with me? A lot of names here, I know. But Sisera goes to this tent and says, give me some water. And J.L. says, oh, I'll give you some water and some bread. Come on in. She gives him, but instead of water, she gives him warm milk. And he's exhausted, and she covers him with a blanket, and he falls asleep. And then she picks up a tent peg and a hammer and drives it through the temple of his head. <laughs> and then, and so he dies. So then Brack comes along, and he says, we're looking for Cicera. And he goes, ah, he's in the tent. Uh, I nailed him to the floor kind of thing. And the next chapter, the next chapter is an entire song of Deborah. And Deborah sings this long song, and it really is about three women. It's about herself, Deborah. It's about Sisera's mother, who is also considered an evil woman, and how she's going to have to be looking for the son that's now dead, and how bad he was, and but she also sings, sings a song about uh, jail, and it's a longer song, but basically it's this, uh, I don't even know that you don't know the tune, but it's like, jail, the mother, she picked up a tent peg and drove it through his head, and he's dead, dead, dead. <laughs> Happy Mother's Day, everyone. Glad you came. <laughs> she gave him warm milk, picked up a tent peg, drove it through his head. I don't know how often they, how often they sang this song, but sang it to their kids as they went to bed, you know. Jael brought a tent peg to a sword fight, and God gave her victory. This is a theme in the book of Judges, by the way. If you were to look at it, I'm just going to give you a couple of examples. Judges chapter 3, Shamgar defeats the Philistines with a cattle prod. You can just picture it. Gideon wins with jars and trumpets. Judges 9, King Abimelech is killed when someone throws a stone, a millstone over a wall and happens to hit him in the head and kills him. 
Judges 15, Samson kills a thousand men with the jawbone of a donkey. I had a bad joke about that, but we'll go on. Zechariah 4, 6 says this, Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. Here's the point on this Mother's Day. If you look at the circumstances of the chariot surrounding you, yes, you'll come away with a picture, I can't win. But I believe God has placed in your hands tent pegs that if used for his glory will give you victory. It says in Galatians, let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. I'm extending this especially, or maybe limiting it, and saying, even in your family, doing good in your family, do not give up. Moms, I'm getting old enough now where I see patterns of living in life. And one of the patterns I've seen over and over and over and over again are moms who feel like failures. As a matter of fact, almost every mom I've ever known feels like a failure at some time. I'm not doing this well. I have regrets about how I did my life. My kids are going to turn out horribly. I mean, it's just over and over again, the enemy is beating people up, more mothers than fathers, really. Dads sometimes are just more laid back. I I don't know what the issue is, but moms, maybe they care more, uh, but they're just this feeling like I'm constantly losing the battle. And and I want to say to you this morning, God has placed things in your hand that if you do not become weary in well-doing, you'll reap a harvest. Things Things may not, there's no guarantee in this. Let me, let me just say that too. There's no like, I can't give you a guarantee that if you do these three things, your kids, I promise you they'll turn out well. But I do tell you this, that you'll prepare a ground where the seed of God can have opportunity to take root. Ultimately, a child's faith always has to become their own. Ultimately. But you can at least Point them in that direction. Put it out before them. And I want to encourage you, no matter how old your kids are, do not give up. Do not, do not give up. Keep. Here's the point. God's placed tent pegs in your hand. I want to look at these different tent pegs, so to speak, about what God can use to to, to further what he wants to do in your children, your family, your spouse. This can be applied to your friends, your coworkers whoever. Here's the first one. Establish a foundation of faith. Establish a foundation of faith. Faith says that when my children, my spouse, my valued friend, that I bring Jesus into the picture. I live by faith, not by sight. And I don't just live by faith. I want to extend that faith to others. Uh, Paul says in Romans 1.12, I mean that I want us to help each other with the faith we have. Your faith will help me, and my faith will help you. There's this dynamic in faith that takes place when when we work together, encouraging one another in faith. And mothers, fathers, you have the opportunity to build upon this foundation of faith. 
Just a couple of biblical examples. I mean, think of the, think of, here's what I was, I'm, I'm talking, sometimes I get tongue-tied. My, my brain gets in front of my, my tongue. We look at our society and we say, we can't win, can't happen, can't take place. Let me give you two biblical examples that show how mothers made an influence in their children in societies in which you would say they can't be successful. The first one is Timothy. Timothy had a mother and a grandmother who exemplified faith. Timothy's mother also had an unbelieving husband. I mean, it's pretty clear in the scripture that his father did not believe, whoever he was. But Timothy, as a young man, comes to know Jesus, probably as a result of the, the, the preaching of Paul. He's in a city of Lystra, which is not known as a place of high faith. So his culture and part of his family is not engaged in faith. But his mother and his grandmother are. They believe the scripture. In 2 Timothy, it says, this is Paul speaking to, to Timothy, he says, I know that you sincerely trust the Lord, for you have the faith of your mother Eunice and your grandmother Lois. Lois and Eunice, Timothy's grandmother and mother. In some way, they instilled in Timothy a foundation of faith so that when Paul comes preaching, they receive the good news of Jesus Christ. They built this truth about God's word. 2 Timothy 3, 14 and 15 says, But as for you, continue in what... Again, Timothy to Paul. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of because you know those from whom you learned it and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. What saved Timothy? Faith in Jesus Christ. What provided the foundation? The teaching of the Scriptures that came by faith. I mean, his faith had to become his own, but at the same time, the mom and grandmother provided a foundation for which that could occur. You may be here today and you have an unbelieving husband or spouse. or a, You may be a single parent. You may have come from a difficult family. Maybe you're thinking that our culture is so overwhelming. I want to encourage you today to still build a foundation of faith in your, in your marriage and in your children. Another example, second example, was that of Moses. I mean, Moses was raised, if you think about it, Moses was born into a, a foreign land that was idol-worshipping, that was then turning around and even killing the, the children of the culture of which he was a part. Moses' mother, Jochebed, she, she hid him in a basket, you know, the story, put him on a river, Pharaoh's daughter is bathing, finds the basket and the baby, and the sister Miriam says, I know somebody who can help with this baby, and go get Moses' actual mother, brings him in, and she provides, I believe in those early years, a foundation of faith for Moses, who though he was even raised in the, the halls of Pharaoh and went to the best colleges, the best schools, um, at, at when time came, that foundation of faith somehow carried him. It says their faith was important. It says by faith, 
Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born because they saw he was no ordinary child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. Why did they do it? Or how did they do it? They did it by faith. Even in, before he could even know what faith was, they were, they were establishing that foundation of faith that in turn saved his life. It goes on, it says, verses 24 and 25, by faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a short time. What was the key? I think the key was the teaching and faith of his parents, particularly his mom. Here's my point. If Moses' mother could put and help encourage and put faith in Moses in that setting, all of us have that ability to, to, to instill faith, instill faith in our children. Here's the point. Don't give up. Don't give up. Don't let the enemy lie to you that the society, the culture, the education, the social media, the media is more powerful than a life of faith. The same Moses later on, when he's commanding the people, he says, these commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Spend time instilling faith, the word of God, living a life of faith into our, our families. You've got the tent peg of faith. You've also got one of prayer. Encourage a lifestyle of prayer. A lifestyle of prayer. I believe this is one of our greatest tools, is to be praying, to be a people of prayer. And not just in the background people of prayer, but prayer that our children can can see. That we live lives of prayer. In 1 Samuel 1 and 2, there's this woman by the name of Hannah who has no children. She's, she's barren. And she cries out to God in prayer. I mean, she's praying so hard at church that even the pastor thinks she's drunk. I mean, the priest, but she's praying so hard. He's like, eh, you need to go on out, sister. And she's just crying out to God for a child. And God, and she gets to the point where she says, God, just give me a child and I'll give him back to you. I'll give him back to you. And sure enough, she receives a son by the name of Samuel. And she sings this song where she says, my heart rejoices in the Lord. In the Lord my horn is lifted up, my mouth boasts over my enemies, for I delight in your deliverance. There is no one holy like the Lord, there is no one besides you, there is no rock like our God. She prays for a son, God gives her a son, she gives him back to God, and yet she can still rejoice. Why? Because she's a woman of prayer, and let me say this too. She's not disappointed because she realizes this is not ultimately about her. 
Let me say that again. This is a parenting tip that I would love for everyone in this room, including myself, to get. Our children are not for our ego. <laughs> I know that sounds a little harsh. But having successful children is not the goal so that you feel better. Right? I'm not getting as many amens as I would uh, like here because some of you, I'm not really sure where we're going. Let me give you an example. This whole college cheating scandal, have you heard about this? Surely you've heard about this. Aunt Becky paid $5 million to get her daughters into school. <laughs> you know, full house. You know, the, the money, these parents, these rich parents whose kids already have everything that you would say as far as affluence, basically bribed people to get their kids into college. Now, they may say, you know, I really wanted them to have a successful life and to be put, they've already got us, they're going to have a life. I mean, one of their daughters was probably making more money than they were on YouTube, however you do that. I really am not even sure how that happens, but it happens. She was making a ton of money and she goes to college. She didn't even want to go to college, but her mom kind of bought her way into USC. Why? My belief is this, so that at the cocktail party she goes to, she can brag about her daughter going to college. Oh, my daughter's at USC or wherever. Why? Because it's about our ego. Listen, when you start to live a life of faith and, 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 and a life of prayer, then you get to a place where you say, you know, I want to I raise Christ-like children who can advance the kingdom of God. Not so that my ego will be built up, but that the kingdom of God will be advanced. We should all cheer. I mean, really, that, that is our goal. I, I want my children far to exceed me. Not in success, but in faith and prayer. I, I want them to go far beyond where I am. My, Kathy and I talk about this all the time. I've got a couple of my children sitting here, but we talk about that all the time. And we say stuff like, you know, I'm so thrilled with where my kids are, but I'm praying that in, in the spiritual realm, God will drive them farther. I, I don't, I really, I really, though I brag on my kids all the time, like every parent and my grandkids even more, uh, although he can't say but three words yet, uh, I'm bragging on them all the time because I think he's a dang cute genius, the little one. And um, the point, though, being this, I, I, I really don't care if my, my sons or daughters or are, are doctors or lawyers or successful or have tons of money. I, you know, I'd rather they be uh, uh, not in jail and out of jail. I would rather they be giving to society in a lot of ways. But my call for them is to be people of faith and prayer, having a heart for the things of God. And Hannah was willing to do that because... God had given her a promise, and she gave birth to a son who becomes a precursor to Jesus, who is also a prophet, priest, and king. I mean, Samuel, to me, is one of the leading, not only characters of the Old Testament, but examples of what God can do. And, and I mean, just because he got raised in the temple, don't think he was doing any better. For some of us, the worst thing we do is inoculate our kids to church. I mean, just bringing your child to church isn't going to cut it, people. 
I mean, I love the church, and I believe in the church, and I think Kathy's doing an incredible job with our children. But Samuel was raised in the temple by the high priest Eli, and Eli's sons, they stunk. I mean, they were, you know, God kills them. God tells Eli, I'm going to wipe out your family. You've done such a horrible job. I'm going to kill your whole kids. And this one I'm going to take, and he's going to be raised up. And it's what happens. Listen, so it's not about raising your children. Hello, we can all testify to this. Now that we're getting older, some of us have raised our kids in the church. Some turned out more. Again, no guarantees. But at the same time, what we have to do is outside of these four walls exemplify lives of faith and prayer. Faith and prayer. And even if you do that, at some point your child's got to make the decision to follow after Christ. Because people, unless the Lord builds the house, you're laboring in vain. Unless the Lord protects a city, guarding it with sentries will do no good. You can pray that hedge of protection around. But unless the Lord puts it there, people, we got to keep praying it. Keep praying it. Keep praying it. Children are a gift from the Lord. They are a reward for him. Children born to a young man are like sharp arrows in a warrior's hand. How happy is the man whose quiver is full of them. I'll get bogged down if I don't keep moving forward, but these arrows have to be pointed, pulled, directed. They're not in the quiver just to sit there, right? They're to be launched. And I believe through faith and prayer, our children can be launched into the destiny that God has for them. I want to encourage you, parents, pray for your kids. I have these memories. First of all, when we had family altar time when I was little, like I was 8, 9, 10. I remember I would, my prayer would be this, Dad, don't call on Mom to pray. That was my prayer. Why? Because I knew if dad said, Mildred, why don't you pray for us? I'm like, oh my gosh, we're going to be here forever. <laughs> She'd start praying and, oh my goodness. <laughs> okay, okay, mom, I get it. You're praying for me. You're worried about me. You're concerned about you. Lord, can't we get done here? And, but at points, I would stop whining and listening. And it would be contagious, what she was praying for. I'd wake up in the middle of the night, even as a teenager. I'd be like 15, 16, 17. She may have done this more as a teenager. As a child, I don't remember as much. But my mom would be over my bed praying for me. And I'd be like, what is this? And she'd be over my bed praying for me. I mean, praying for me. I mean, I wasn't a, a bad kid, at least I, I don't think. Now, my brother, he needed prayer. She should have gone over there and prayed for him more than me. But she established in me a, a thought for prayer. You know, I miss my mom every day. I miss my mom for a lot of reasons. Before she became, before dementia and the strokes kind of hit her, I would talk to my mom almost every day. And she would tell me a lot of times what she was praying for me about. And I knew that in my mother, I had a person on this planet who prayed for me every day. I've told you this before. I'm, there's a sense of, and some of you have been so sweet, you've come up to me and said, I pray for you every day, Pastor. And I, I want to say thank you for praying for me. But I know that when my mom passed away, I felt that 
loss of prayer. Um, praying parents. I mean, think about this. If you have the tent peg of faith and of prayer, I, I believe you're unstoppable. I mean, I believe that. I believe God will use it. And let's say your kids are away from you right now. I want to away from the Lord right now. I want to say, don't give up. Don't give up. I, I think this passage says this. You, you do everything in your power possible and leave the impossible to God. He can do impossible, impossible things. Okay, here's the final point. It's enable a future with a vision. Parents, instill vision into your children. What do I mean by that? I mean, like those arrows, point them in a direction. I'm not saying micromanage their lives, tell them what they're going to be, but at least encourage them to say, God has a destiny for your life. Seek after him. He'll, he'll tell you what it is. He'll give it to you. He'll, but point them outward. Proverbs 29 says this, where there is no vision, the people are unrestrained. I think this is especially true of children. If they have no vision, they are unrestrained. And I got to tell you, maybe I'm just getting old, but there's nothing less attractive than unrestrained children in the sense of having no boundaries, no discipline, no, we're raised in a society now where it says, hey, just let them be themselves. I'm going to quote Jonathan Edwards there. All children are little vipers. <laughs> he believed in the total depravity of man, and he would point to his kids to say, look. <laughs> we are all stand in need of a Savior, including our children someday, and at some point, as God calls their hearts to him. Susanna Wesley, the mother of John and Charles Wesley. John was Wesley, the great preacher, the founder of Methodism. Charles Wesley wrote, I don't even know how many thousands of hymns, one of the greatest hymn writers in history. From nine to noon and two to five, every day she would teach her children pouring into their lives, scripture and prayer. And let me just say this too. If you read the biography of John Wesley, when did he come to know the Lord? It wasn't until he was an adult. Even though his mom poured into him, it was later in life when he really came to know the Lord and was filled with the Spirit and really turned his heart. When He was going on a mission trip, basically, when he came across some guys who really knew God and pointed him in that direction. But his mom established a vision for their future. Sarah Edwards, I was just talking about Jonathan Edwards. Sarah Edwards was the wife of Jonathan Edwards. Unbelievable story of her life. I mean, really, she, she is, was an incredible woman for her time. Uh, and born in the 1700s, uh, she, she, her, her dad was uh, uh, James Pierpoint, who was the, the, the head and founder of Yale University. And uh, she was, um, for her time, for a woman, she was well, well educated. An extreme thinker. As a matter of fact, some people believe that her um, thinking and her challenging of Jonathan Edwards is one of the things that helped uh, him become the great thinker that he was. She was 
five, six, seven years younger than Jonathan Edwards uh, when they got married. And so I think she was 17 and he was like 24, which was common for that day. He was a student at Yale when he met her. I think when he met her, she was only 13. He had to wait a little while uh, for her to get to 15, which was the marrying age at that period. And 17, they get married. They have 11 children, 11 children. And she poured into their children. And since in, in, in prayer and in vision and in academics, she poured into her kids. Anyone who reads the life of Jonathan Edwards, he talks about his children, but he acknowledges that it's his wife who did everything in their education. Of their descendants, you've probably seen some of these stats before, of their descendants, more than 300 became pastors, missionaries, or theological professors. And by the way, these stats are only good up until like 1940. So, I mean, these aren't even past that period. 120 were professors at various universities. 110 became attorneys. 60 were prominent authors. 30 were judges. 14, 14 served as presidents of universities and colleges. Three have served in the United States Congress, and one became vice president of the United States. By the way, trivia question, anyone know who that was? The vice president? That was their descendant? You Hamilton fans? It was Aaron Burr, was, her, was their grandson. Their family, her particularly, remarkable how they, she poured vision into her family. My mom... Um, she went to high school. Her parents never even graduated from high school. I think her dad, my grandfather, finished third grade before he went to work. I think my grandmother finished sixth grade, seventh grade. I remember when I was little, and this tells you about my family background. I remember when I was little, I would go to my grandparents' house, and my grandmother would sit there and read the paper to my grandfather because he couldn't read. My mom graduated from high school. She became a dental hygienist, but she never had the opportunity to, to go to college. And when I was young and I would read, my mom would say to me, uh, what books are you reading? And I remember, I remember when I was in middle school, I read The Lord of the Rings. Uh, you know, I said, hey, I read the, I'm reading The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. She goes, oh, I'll read that. You know, my mom, see, she's like, I don't know. As she's reading the Lord of the Rings, the whole thing. Who is this guy? Who is this guy? She read them because I was reading them. She read them so that she could have conversations with me. And she read them in a way that, that she would challenge me about the truths that she would see or the, the things that weren't true in them. Now, I'm not telling you moms, oh, okay, you got to read everything your child reads. you got to do that. I'm just saying my mom came from a background that that was not something that was really important. But she was, it was important to me because I, I was a reader, I always have been, I've loved reading. And so it became important to her because it was important to me. And she wanted to point me in a direction that had vision, that had destiny. Because she was afraid with the way I thought, and I won't go into that, but the way I thought that I could end up in a ditch on all of these sides. And she wanted to at least point me down this road and said, he, Aim here. Keep aiming, aiming here. Eunice had a 
had a vision for Timothy. Jochebed had a vision for a baby Moses. Hannah had a vision for Samuel. Think about this. Think about the, the lady we talked about last week who you had the little boy with the five loaves and the two fishes that Jesus used to multiply and feed 5,000 people. Where did he get those five loaves and two fishes? Can't you see him at home? Mom, I don't want to take a lunch. Nobody else is taking a lunch. Why should I take a lunch? You know, I'm going to look like such a nerd when I get to Jesus' teaching and I got my little basket, my little lunchbox, you know, with Power Rangers on the outside, and they're all going to make fun of me. I don't want to take this to there. I don't know how it went down. It's not in the scripture, but I'm thinking he didn't probably pack his lunch. I mean, since when does a little boy pack his own lunch? His mom did probably, but she had a vision. Hey, take this lunch. You don't want to cut. You know how long the meeting's going to last. And God used. You don't know how the dominoes will fall if you live this foundation of faith life of prayer, instilling vision in your kids. I, I honestly believe that we can, we have tent pegs in sword fights. They may look little, but when used by God, they can accomplish great things because ultimately, people, it's he who builds the house. And my prayer is this, may we have homes built by the Lord. Lord, I pray this morning that we be encouraged, that, that the moms here, the parents here will be encouraged that when, when the questions of life come at them that say, am I doing this right? Am I, am I succeeding? Am I, are my children going to become what God wants? Can I overcome the environment of our society and our culture and our education? That, God, we would do battle. We would, we would uplift by faith and prayer and vision. I pray that we would be encouraged to go the distance. I pray that, Holy Spirit, you would come and encourage people today and minister truth. I pray that the moms here today would know that they're the Eunice's and Jacobeds and Hannah's of this generation pouring into the lives of their children. May we, may we not be discouraged in well-doing. I pray against a spirit of condemnation today and instead pray for a spirit of hope even if we feel like we failed, which we probably in some measure have, all of us fail, we stumble and fall, we would still be encouraged to say, okay, I'm going to lift my eyes to the Lord. I'm going to, I'm going to look to the God of all comfort. I'm going to look to the God of power. I'm going to look to the God of faith. I'm going to look to my creator, my redeemer, my sustainer. Lord, this morning we cry out to you and we lift our eyes up to you, saying we, we are powerless without you. Thank you for these small things you've placed in our hands. May we use them for your glory. Stand with me. Let's just as our prayer together cry out to the Lord as we look to him.